And our reading this morning will be Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. And I invite you to keep standing, uh, if you're able, as we read together from Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of a very expensive ointment. She poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. If you were to describe Jesus as an amazing teacher, you would of course be correct and you would get that from all four of the Gospels. But it's likely that when you're thinking of Jesus as a teacher, like you're thinking of the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew that has the most detailed account of Jesus' greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's where we have so many of the parables of the kingdom of God contained, where Jesus tells us of the kingdom he has ushered in and the kind of king he is. We just concluded this teaching of judgment with the Olivet Discourse. And every teaching section in Matthew, and there are five major teaching sections, they all conclude when Jesus finished these sayings, except this last teaching section. In chapter 26, verse 1, there's a slight change. It says, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, the teaching is over, but the book, of course, is not. Jesus is a great teacher, He's a great teacher, just like our great teachers are great. He loves his students, and he pours himself into them. He captivates them with incredible images that are memorable, that that stick with you, that that we chew on after we have heard the material. But see, Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's the greatest teacher, and he's the greatest teacher because he is the content of his teaching. He is the one he proclaims. He describes a kingdom in which he is the king. He summarizes a spectacularly beautiful law that finds its fulfillment in him. He describes our need as sinful men and women, but he doesn't just give us this call to external righteousness or outward conformity. That's just the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He calls us to whole person, whole heart righteousness. But what good does it do to be taught the beautiful, joyful, and good life if you and I can't do it? And so make no mistake, he's preaching himself. He's preaching his own life. He's he's preaching the work that he will do for us, and this is everything. How are you feeling this morning? Why are you here? 
I'm sure there are mixed motives for some of you, but I'm so glad you're here. Are you worried and anxious about something? Are you exhausted? Are you tired? Are you hurting? Are you angry? Because my goal this morning is to proclaim the joy of the gospel, which right now is as simple as this story isn't over yet. The gospel did not end in Matthew chapter 25. The good news is that, yeah, Jesus calls us to a better kingdom and a better way that we could ever achieve for ourselves, and so he's going to do it for us. And this is what makes what we do so different. It's what makes Christianity so different. This journey to the cross, this journey to the grave, and this journey to an empty tomb that we are about ready to embark upon. Our passage this morning might be the highlight of Matthew's literary skills. It's filled with irony. It's filled with these twists and turns, and he's upsetting all of these expectations. And so as we break down this, this wonderful passage of, of three scenes together, um, we're going to see just three elements of, of the story as, as we read it. All of them point to the mission of Jesus, which is to ransom, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so our three points this morning are Christ delivered. Of course, Christ is not delivered from death, but to death. Christ anointed, and then Christ betrayed. So first of all, the first scene we'll look at is Christ delivered. In the first scene we have in Matthew 16, it's about Christ delivered. And so after his teaching on judgment, that's what we've looked at the last few weeks, Jesus says in verse 2, you know that after the two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then a quick scene change in verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. As we embark on this journey to the cross, what I want to highlight here is the idea of who is in charge, who is in control. Who has the power and the control over the situation? Is it the authorities conspiring or is it Jesus himself? See, there's a battle of wills going on here. Ultimately, who will win out? Who is doing what to whom is the question. Because on the one hand, Jesus has been saying, this is the road I'm traveling. This is the end. This is the direction that I'm heading. In Matthew 16, asks Peter, who do you you say that I am? And and, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, And Jesus affirms him in that. But then Jesus says, but here's the thing, I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be handed over. And Peter says, wait a second, that can't happen. And he receives the fiercest rebuke from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Peter can't fathom a Lord and Savior who suffers. And Jesus says, that's because your value system is wrong. You think you need a triumphant king, but what you need is a Savior who will be your substitute. You need a suffering Savior. Jesus is in control of his destiny. He will be delivered over, which means that he will deliver himself over. Now, from our perspective, he looks passive. Even at the end of our passage, Judas joins in with the language of of delivering him over. And so it looks and sounds like Jesus is just this pawn who's being handed back and forth. But that's not the real reality. The real reality is John 10. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. Jesus' death is the greatest injustice this world has ever known. Jesus' death is the greatest evil this world has ever seen. 
But make no mistake, it was no tragedy. It is the triumphant act of King Jesus. So from the beginning of the road to the cross, you, you bet Jesus is in the driver's seat, which makes three to four, verses three and four, so funny, comedic, silly. The issue of Jesus has escalated from the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Those have been his dialogue opponents the last few weeks. And now uh, it's been escalated to, to the chief priests and the elders. Those are the, the ones who had all the civic decisions. They're making those decisions in, in Jerusalem. And they're conspiring against Jesus, figuring out what to do with him. And so maybe think of Psalm 2, because that's what's happening here. In Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And what is God doing in the meantime? He who sits in the heavens laughs. So much of our passage is Matthew subtly unveiling the irony of the whole situation. Jesus has just concluded his teaching in the Olivet Discourse saying that he is the judge over all creation and yet here are these guys locked away in some room planning to judge the judge. Notice their concern. They just want to make sure all this business with Jesus is handled after Passover. Jerusalem's population would swell during Passover. A lot of religious pilgrims would be present. Many would have heard about Jesus and, and they would want to know what the fuss was all about. And the religious leaders just want to keep quiet. They just want to get through the holiday, get through the holiday, busy holiday weekend, right? Then we can deal with Jesus. So again, that question is whose will will prevail? Who's in control? Who's in charge? Even this question of will Jesus be killed during Passover or after Passover is profound. Remember what Passover is. Go back to the book of Exodus. You have the 10 plagues that God keeps sending against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Moses keeps coming saying, God wants his people back. Deliver them out of slavery. And Pharaoh keeps getting hard against Israel. And he says, no, I will not release the Hebrew slaves. And so plague after plague, the earth turns dark. Blood in the Nile, gnats and locusts and boils. And, and the, the nation is slowly getting crippled, but Pharaoh refuses to let the people go until the 10th plague, which is the Passover. And the angel of the Lord passes over Egypt and kills every firstborn son, except the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Make no mistake, Jesus is defining his Passover story. He is fulfilling what Passover all along was intended to point to because in this Passover story, which is our Passover story, we are saved because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Death and hell will pass over us because they do not pass over Jesus. We are saved because the Lord amazingly did not pass over his firstborn son. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is so powerful. Tie it back to last week. Jesus is presenting this picture. Every nation will come and bow before him, but first he will suffer and die for the nations. Who is a God like this God? Because you and I will worship, you and I will consume ourselves with relationships and careers and reputations. We will seek pleasure and security that will demand every last ounce of us. And here is the one who is delivered for us. The one worthy of our service first serves us. The one worthy of our love first loves us. The one worthy of our, of our all, and he demands our all, first gives every last bit of himself. What else are we looking for? And so we go from plotting, that's how Jesus will be delivered, to the next scene, which is of Jesus' anointing, which is our second point. 
Again, from the beginning, Matthew's composing this this beautifully. We go from the palace of the high priest to verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, what a contrast, right? This is like a scene change from the Ritz-Carlton to Salvation Army. It's more than unlikely that Simon had leprosy at the time. That would have made everyone unclean. But we have every reason to think, since he was called Simon the leper, that at some point he had leprosy. Maybe Jesus healed him. The first ministry Jesus does in Matthew in chapter 4, he heals every kind of disease and affliction. How wonderful would it have been if that was Simon, right? Jesus begins his ministry healing Simon, and and he is at the end of his ministry in Simon's house. Who knows? But the point isn't Simon's house. The point is the woman who comes up to him in verse 7. Jesus is in Bethany. Whenever you hear Bethany, think Jesus' friends. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we know from the Gospel of John that the unnamed woman is Mary. And so Mary comes with an alabaster flask. So let's imagine we have a bottle of perfume. Just like one you'd find walking through the Macy's cosmetic section, about that size. But instead of crystal, it's made with alabaster, which is marble. You can see these like in the British Museum, and they're still amazing works of human art. These beautiful marble vials that held perfume. We're told in a parallel account it was spikenard, which is a valuable essential oil that at the time was only procured from India. And it was worth about a year's salary of a working man. So let's put it somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000. This little marble bottle of perfume, forty dollars to $60,000. Costco at times has sold a 65-year-old bottle of scotch whiskey for $34,000. We're not even Baptists, but what's your gut reaction to someone buying a bottle of $34,000 scotch whiskey? That was a joke. Calm down. What's your gut reaction? No, don't do it. No, don't do it. Now, how would you act if someone came to your dinner party holding a $34,000 bottle? And we have to play with our social conventions and use our imagination, but they proceed to pour it all. They just dump this $34,000 bottle on the head of the guest of honor. How would you feel watching that? Maybe like the disciples, they were indignant. Why this waste? You could have given this to the poor. You just told us about loving the poor. Isn't this a good application? Use the money and go serve someone. And Jesus, aware of their grumbling, defends the woman. He says, why are you troubling her? Back off, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We don't know why she did this extravagant act of devotion. We just know it was an act of love. We know it was an act of adoration. And it is received by Jesus as such. Maybe she did it as an act of of belief, an act of faith, saying, My friend, you are the Messiah. My friend, you are the anointed one. You are worthy of everything. Maybe that was her intention, but that is not Jesus' interpretation. Jesus says, She has prepared me for burial. She prepares Jesus for his death. She treats Jesus like a king, and yet he receives her gift knowing that he will not even receive the burial of a criminal. After death, the family would have the body prepared using ointments and perfumes and oils unless you were the worst kind of criminal. 
Jesus anticipates the shame and he anticipates the disgrace of dying a criminal's death. And so how powerful and how profound for him to say, this is my burial right now. This is my time to have someone love me, take my body and care for my body because it will not happen after I'm dead. This is my body in the hands of one who loves me. Mary is the model of faith. Mary is the model of devotion. The world is not worthy of Mary of Bethany. She anoints the body that would be broken for her. Out of all of the beautiful things this world can produce, from Bora Bora to the northern lights, Victoria Falls, the mountains of Montana, I think this scene in the front room of a leper's house belongs right up there. As one writer puts it, her sweet perfume that filled the leper's house fills the world. This woman, out of her devotion and love to Jesus, is now part of the story of Christ crucified. Pilate would condemn him. Simon of Cyrene would carry his cross. Joseph of Arimathea would ensure his body would not be exposed but would have a place to rest. And Mary of Bethany, in this profound act of worship and adoration, she anoints his body for burial. Jesus is delivered. He's anointed and finally he is betrayed. Mary is, of course, contrasted with the disciples in this passage. She has extravagantly blessed Jesus and they're dismayed by her behavior. And then in verse 14, the scene shifts again to the climax of betrayal, the betrayal of betrayals, uh, the, uh, the backstabbing of backstabbings, the patron anti-saint of traitors, Judas Iscariot. By this point, Judas's lack of faith has been joined with, with hatred of Jesus. I think this is important. Was, was the straw that broke the camel's back seeing Jesus receive this adoration from Mary? How do we respond to that? This, is a, this reception of Mary's adoration has to be maybe the pinnacle after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, to Jesus, acknowledging to us that he is God, that he is worthy. Because how would you feel if someone came up to you and poured out a 50,000 bottle dollar bottle of perfume on your head you would say what are you doing stop that and Jesus says this is good this is right he's worthy of it and so maybe Judas witnesses that and says enough of this I'm getting out of this before it explodes I'm, I'm getting off the train before it crashes there are a lot of theories of why he was so disillusioned with with Jesus was it because Jesus was a messiah and all this talk of death and weakness was just nothing he didn't want anything to do with that was he a zealot, like in the technical sense of wanting to restore Jerusalem's greatness? And he saw Jesus as an obstacle to that greatness, which he was. It's probably all of these. And so he goes to strike a deal. Our passage began with the chief priests wanting to wait until Passover is over. Judas goes to them and he makes sure that Jesus' timeline is the timeline that wins out. No one twists his arm. He seeks the religious leaders. And he's a weak negotiator, isn't he? He says, what will you give me? That's weak negotiation. Always come in with a demand. And they say, here's 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus 21, if a slave was accidentally gored by your ox, the price of restitution was 30 pieces of silver. Do you see the contrast of value? Mary pours out perfume that she can't afford. He is worth incredible value. Judas values Jesus as less than a slave. Judas is wicked. He's supernaturally wicked. If, if Jesus is pure goodness and holiness and beauty, Judas' hatred toward Jesus is just satanic. 
What else is there to say about Judas? Jesus' death isn't a tragedy, but he is. But where I want to end is with the disciples. Not every disciple is Judas, obviously, but eventually, don't they all forsake Jesus and run away? Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The others betray Jesus for free. The disciples, more than anyone or anything, act as our mirrors. As much as Mary is a model of faith, the disciples are warnings of how easy it is for our faith to be misguided, our, our, our faith to, to be weak. Jesus is anointed and suddenly the disciples become these, these idealist humanitarians, right? Jesus, in effect, says, the poor will be here tomorrow. Go ahead and serve them then. It's a self-righteous response. But the disciples are the mirrors for us and we need those mirrors to see our need for Christ. One writer, Adolf Schlatter, writes, the service that the disciples performed for Jesus during their time of the cross consisted mainly in their making clear through their weakness and foolishness how true Jesus' forgiveness, patience, and grace was for them. Don't our lives consist mainly in making clear through our weakness and foolishness just how true Jesus' forgiveness, patience, and grace is for us? Mary stands out as odd and strange in a room full of Jesus' biggest fans. Her adoration is perceived as over the top by those who would identify themselves as his defenders. With friends like these, right? But that's the point. That's the point. Jesus would go to the cross for Mary, but he, he, he went to the cross for his disciples who looked on in scorn. And he would go to the cross for this room of disciples. Do you know what it's like to betray Jesus? Do you know what it's like to confess Jesus as Lord and King and then to treat him as nothing? I think you do. And that's who he went to the cross for. He went to the cross for us. He went to the cross for those of us with loose lips who, who seek to, to always justify ourselves through gossip, putting down others. He went to the cross for those who trust in their bank balances and retirement accounts. He went to the cross for the angry. He went to the cross for the self-righteous and the judgmental. He went to the cross for the idolater and the adulterer. He went to the cross for you and me. Maybe it makes sense Matthew being a tax collector and all, that there's so much, theme, so much of a theme of value in this passage, right? The expensive perfume, 30 pieces of silver. So maybe the question for us to walk away with this morning is, is what do we value? It's so easy to say, well, just don't be a Judas and be a Mary, but none of us needed to come to church to hear that. I think we all knew to be more like Mary and not like Judas, Instead, the question for us to reflect on is what do you value? And it's why the takeaway isn't be like Mary, but behold Jesus and remember his costly love for you. And maybe you do need to come to church to be reminded of that. Maybe you do need to come to church for that word to not only hear it, but to see it at this table. Jesus' costly love for you. Mary was faithful because Mary was loved. Mary was faithful, not because she was amazing, but because she knew Jesus to be amazing. Uh, one of my favorite lines from Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the 19th century preacher, remember therefore it is not your hold that saves you, it is Christ. 
It's not your joy in Christ that saves you, it is Christ. Look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ, but look to Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Mary helps us to know what he is and what she knew him to be. To be valued in the eyes of God is where our love for God and neighbors is ignited. It's not until we can rest in the infinitely valuable love of Jesus for us that we will value him as he is. The good life of peace and joy is found in loving Jesus because he's worth it. Because as the needy that stand alongside the disciples, we can rejoice because Jesus went all the way. And that's the point. He went all the way. Anointed for burial for the death in which our death would die. And in the hope of life eternal that he would gain. He's worthy. Let's pray. Lord, would we be confronted with your worth this morning? It is so easy to relate to you as, as one who is less than what you are worth. It's easy to have our value systems upended by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, Lord, confront us again with, with the beauty of this scene, the worthiness of Jesus, the love that is proclaimed over us, the love that is on display at this table. Lord, we are reminded that the disciples who looked on in scorn were not left in that place. But, Lord, there was a cross and a, and a grave and a resurrection which would announce for all time eternally your worth, your value, your love. So Lord, would you confront us by your spirit again with a vision of that love, the glory of that love, that it would be our identity, it would be what we live from as we love you, as we love our neighbors where you've called us to be. Holy Spirit, would you seal this word to our hearts? We know the greatness of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.